and welcome to another episode of Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast produced by the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. I am your host, Michelle Luevano. Today on this episode, we have a special guest, Mr. Todd McCracken, who currently serves as the president of the National Small Business Association in D.C. He is joining us to discuss issues impacting businesses at the legislative level in regards to COVID-19 and what we can look like in terms of economic recovery in the future. Of course, before we get started, I want to give a big shout out and thank you to all of our partners. First of all, thank you to Sun Carpets for our gorgeous recording studio. We hope to be back in our recording studio sooner rather than later. And then, of course, we also want to thank Epicenter. If you are looking for commercial real estate in the El Paso area, please give Epicenter a call at 915-532-3456. They have locations all over town to suit your needs. So without further ado, let's go ahead and talk with Todd McCracken, president of the National Small Business Association, about legislation impacting businesses during this COVID-19 crisis. So a little bit of background about Mr. Todd McCracken. He currently serves as the president of the National Small Business Association, directing all activities of the advocacy-oriented association. Mr. McCracken became president of NSBA in 1997. He started with the association in 1988, previously serving as vice president of government affairs. Mr. McCracken represents NSBA before the U.S. Congress in a myriad of other settings. As director of its governmental affairs arm, Mr. McCracken plays a key role in developing NSBA's policies on issues and the strategies in implementing them. Since coming to the association, Mr. McCracken has testified before Congress numerous times about issues ranging from fundamental health care reform to tax code restructuring. And a little fun fact is that he is from the area. Originally, he is from Alamogordo, New Mexico. I am. It's wonderful to have you. I'm sorry that we couldn't have you in person and then you could have jotted up to your, your old stomping ground. Uh, we should do that sometime because I'm there all the time because my family still lives in southern New Mexico for the, main, for the most part. So I'm back in that part of the world all the time flying into the airport there in, in El Paso. Um, and I went to college in Texas, too, in San Antonio. Um, so uh, it's, it is like coming to me. So it's great to speak with you all uh, today. It's great to be here. Uh, I've admired the work of the El Paso Hispanic Chamber for many years uh, uh, and their tri uh, trips coming to Washington and seeing the programs they do for the, for the constituents back there in, in El Paso. It's, it's, it's a great organization. I'm really happy to, to, to participate. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. We would love to have you come and see our new physical center once, you know, a little bit, uh, once we get back to whatever the new normal is going to be um, once COVID-19 kind of dies down a little bit. We won't hold it against you that you didn't go to UTEP and you went to San Antonio. <laughs> we'll go ahead and forgive you for that one. So I want to go ahead and kick off our conversation by talking a little bit about some of the things that have been going on in the past couple of weeks. Everything has been moving really quickly. We all know that things are changing and evolving rapidly. So before Memorial Day, the Treasury Department issued rules and guidance for the PPP loan forgiveness program. But the House recently passed a different bill, the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act. So what are really the key differences between those two forgiveness programs or guidelines? Well, the, uh, we are pleased that the Treasury and SBA finally put out the, the forgiveness uh, uh, guidance because that was really lacking because a lot of companies had, 
had that loan for weeks and still didn't know exactly what the rules were going to be to get forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So that helped give some surety, but still the rules didn't give enough flexibility. We have been advocating to give a lot of flexibility to companies, especially around when the eight-week period would begin, because as you know, you can only seek forgiveness for expenses for eight weeks following when you receive the loan. Um, and uh, we had suggested that maybe the eight-week period could start at some other time other than when the loan was received because diff uh, business conditions are so different. Um, and the only flexibility they gave in there was to allow it to start on the next payroll date, the beginning of the next payroll period following receipt of the loan. Um, but that was it. Um, and the, the bill that passed the House, and a similar bill I think is about to pass the Senate, uh, which allows a lot more flexibility, not necessarily when the time frame starts, but how long it can run. So the House bill uh, allowed it to go uh, uh, 24 weeks. I think the Senate bill is going to do 16 weeks. So they have a lot longer period of time to see those expenses come in that they can seek forgiveness for. The other thing we'd been advocating for that they did not change in the, in the guidance was to loosen up on the rule that at least 75% of your expenses that are forgiven had to be for payroll expenses. Uh, and realizing that a lot of companies have very steep expenses, especially in rent and other things uh, that are a significant portion of their, of their expenses, especially now, uh, because if they're not fully operational, some of those fixed costs are still there. Um, so that 75% threshold was difficult for some companies, uh, and we've advocated for some flexibility there that the Treasury and SBA did not provide uh, in their guidance. But the bill that's passed going through Congress, I think, is going to uh, lower that 75% number to 60%. So those are the two big differences from what is on the books now, the people having to live with, and what they may get uh, in a couple of weeks if this makes it through Congress and the president signs it, I think they're gonna get an extension on how, on, of more than eight weeks, probably 16 weeks, and how long they can uh, use expenses. And then and then uh, uh, a 60% threshold minimum, minimum for uh, payroll expenses, forgiveness, not 75. So you mentioned the Senate bill and changing that 24 weeks to potentially 16 weeks. So is that really the main key difference in terms of the legislation making its way through the Senate and the House, or are there some other key differences as well? It, it is the significant difference. And um, uh, House uh, leaders have intimated that they would accept the 16-week rule that the Senate is proposing. So it looks likely that the Senate is going to pass a slightly different version of the bill than the House passed probably this week, and then the House will just take up the Senate bill um, without having to go into a negotiation between the two, and then they'll just pass the Senate's version on their own, and they can go to the president for his signature. It may not happen that way. You know, weird politics get in the way of these things all the time, especially these days, uh, but that's what I would anticipate will happen. So I want to kind of go back to the Treasury rule for a minute. The Treasury really imposed also what seems to be almost an arbitrary cap in terms of the amount that owner employer employees mm -hmm. and the self-employed would be able to claim as forgivable. So can you talk to us a little bit about the reasoning behind this cap and if we might see some changes in the legislation? Uh, Probably not on that. They imposed a cap. Well, let me back up. The, the legislation says that um, payroll expenses for any given employee that are forgiven cannot exceed an annualized rate of $100,000. So mm -hmm. if someone makes 
$120,000, then you have to have to back off the forgiveness for their payroll to just $100,000. But then for employees, you can add back on top of that uh, wage expense for their uh, various employee benefits. Mm -hmm. For the owner, you cannot do that. You're capped at $100,000, period, uh, including those expenses, those uh, those 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 uh, benefit expenses. The rationale is twofold. One for the for the for the completely self-employed people who don't have anybody else working for them, um, and and may not even have income this year. They've based their um, uh, forgiveness levels and loan levels, for that matter, based on their 2019 uh, Schedule C for the most part um, profits, uh, and they've capped hundred thousand dollars. It's an arbitrary decision. I think for the companies that have employees, you know, there's a longstanding concern about about business owners, and um, not very few people do this. But there is the but there is the um, ability for a business owner to sort of play games with their benefit programs mm -hmm. and and exaggerate those expenses so they they can get more forgiveness. And that's so they were trying to eliminate the possibility that companies can do that. We think it's basically unfair that there were, there were other ways around that. They could have simply um, tied the benefit expense for the owner to the average for the other employees or done other things so that those games couldn't be played rather than just an arbitrary cap. But that is what they've done. Um, and um, while we've raised concerns about it, uh, fixing that part of it in all candor has not been the priority for the with the legislators, um, because there's not as much sympathy, I think, politically for people who are making more than $100,000 a year, which is basically who it would help. Right. Understand. Understandable, you know, that there's some politics at play there in terms of, of how it looks to the general public. Yep. I do want to kind of pivot right now. We've been talking about the PPP program, and we've got some legislation coming down the pipeline with that. But there's been another lending program that has been out that maybe hasn't gotten as much attention, which is the Federal Reserve's Main Street Lending Program. Mm -hmm. So it's $600 billion for businesses that they are investing, but only a few businesses have been reported as actually taking advantage of this program. So in your opinion, why have business owners either been reluctant or just not been able to go ahead and take advantage of this program? I think a couple of reasons. One is it's not really been fully rolled out um, uh, yet. Uh, it is a lot of money, but if you look at the par business parameters for the Main Street Lending Program the Fed put up, uh, it is the, the parameters are really high well, for, by, for small business standards. So they even said their main target uh, for this program was more mid-sized companies, companies that are a little bit too big for the PPP program but not so big that they're big public companies that can that can create their own debt instruments and sell bonds and all those kinds of things and the companies are caught in this squeeze and that's really i think who they are marketing it to while it's well it's not for the really big boys it's also i think for the most part hasn't been designed with the very small business in mind either um so there's that piece of it um and then the the, the third thing i would say is that in talking to small business owners, I mean, a lot of them are really reluctant to go into debt right now. And a lot of them are not, are not seeking uh, non-PPP debt because uh, they're unsure about where the economy is going, 
what the nature of their business is going to be in six months to a year, and they're really reluctant to take on new debt. Typically, when a company chooses to go into debt, it's either because they have an immediate cash flow issue, that, but they don't see a danger, long-term danger in their business, or they see a real growth opportunity that they want to take advantage of, and they need that cash to do that. Um, and right now, uh, while a lot of companies have those cash flow issues, they're they're not investing in their companies for the most part with growth in mind. Aside from a few examples who are who are of companies that are actually profiting because of the current condition, delivery companies, et cetera. So I think that's really what's what's at the crux of it. Is it's not designed for the smallest companies. Um, it's not fully rolled out yet, and um, most businesses really aren't in the in the mindset right now of seeking credit for growth purposes. Right. It's much more about survival and staying alive that's from right. month to month at this point. Um, rather and that's, than why the, that's why the PPP loan program was, you know, has been taken up by millions of companies because it, it gives them, it's not perfect. And it's not, I don't think if we designed it today, as, as opposed to in end of February, beginning of March, it would look really different, but it, it essentially gives them money that, that they need now um, without long-term debt obligations. And that's what companies were looking for. And that's why it's been so popular. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies besides looking for survival from month to month, they're also looking for some, what we constantly hear is stability in the PPP program, stability in the future, which takes me into my next question, which is looking towards the future, looking towards creating that sense of economic stability for businesses, what kind of legislation can we expect to see coming out of Congress, if anything, to really help promote economic stability and growth? Well, I do think there is once again some level of interest in doing an infrastructure bill. Uh, we've needed that for a long time, uh, and it's been talked about for a long time, but this could give some impetus to that actually happening. And that will provide some real economic benefits, even to companies that aren't directly involved in, in infrastructure, that, are, that aren't laying down roads or building bridges or all the rest of it. There are all kinds of ancillary economic benefits that all kinds of businesses will be able to take advantage of. So that's one thing I think is is is, is still possible to do. Um, the idea of a uh, of expansion of the employer uh, employee tax credit uh, is I think gaining steam and we could see that incorporated into a into an economic package um, which would provide uh, real help ongoing beyond the PPP for companies to, to, to maintain their workforces and to stay in business um, if they've seen a decline in revenue. And I think that potentially could help a lot. Um, but unfortunately, all of this, I think, is happening in, in an election year where politicians, you know, they just can't help themselves from trying to score political points. And um, it's, it, it is really it is hard to see in all candor a really significant coordinated economic uh, uh, approach being being developed and and implemented uh, in the next few months before before the big election. Uh, I think it's likelier to devolve into a into a fight. So speaking about the future, one of the things that are the two most dreaded words to small businesses are rules and regulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So on the 19th, of course, the president issued an executive order about rules and regulations for agencies to help really stimulate the economy, provide some relief to businesses as we start coming out of this COVID-19 and we start reopening. So can you share with us what this executive order specifically does in regards to regulations and helping businesses get back into functioning? Well, it, it directs the agencies specifically to, to look at ways that they can provide regulatory relief um, rather than just allowing them to. It tells them they need to do this. Um, and, then it, and then it sort of clears the way. It makes it easier for them to then implement those, those things. And I think the first thing we're going to see is a lot of agencies, it's a lot of individual, relatively small things individually, uh, like filing deadlines and, and um, when reports are due and all kinds of stuff that because of the COVID-19 crisis, a lot of these things have been waived or delayed. And those are the very first things they're going to look at. So I, I would tell business owners, if there's... Uh, a, a rule that they've seen some flexibility in complying with during this period, um, whether it's from anybody from the Department of the Army to BLM to EPA, uh, those are the first things those agencies are going to look at to see uh, if they could make if they can make those changes you've seen permanent. Um, that if there's been some easing of rules. Those are the first things that we could expect to see um, uh, um, you know eased eased and, and made and made permanent um, that that there's a i think the thinking that a lot of folks are going to push is that if 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 we could not live with this rule for March, April, May, and June, why do we need it in July, August, and september um, mm -hmm. and so and some of them, they'll say, well, we do need that, actually, because, for instance, we've pushed back the tax filing deadlines. We obviously can't get rid of tax filing deadlines. <laughs> uh, well, that's very taxes. disappointing news. <laughs> <laughs> but there are many things that I think the situation, when you, when you, they may have seemed necessary, but then when you live without them and the sky doesn't fall, mm -hmm. you realize, well, gosh, we should just get rid of this or stop it or make it much simpler and easier. So all of those things, I think, are the ones that are going to, they're going to go first, but I also think there'll be a much bigger list of uh, of um, uh, uh, proposals that that especially specific industries will propose. So, I would really suggest to your members if if folks see some some regulations that that are particularly bothersome that they think they can see a way this could be fixed, to be made much easier for them to comply with. This really is the time to let their trade associations let us know what they are, because the agencies are going to be looking to us here really in the next few weeks to give them that feedback and it could make real change. I'm sure that I'm going to be flooded by emails pretty soon saying <laughs> <laughs> this regulation can go and that regulation can go and we will be happy to provide you with all of that information from our members. I do want to talk a little bit about some other legislation that has been quite the source of contention among Democrats and Republicans in Congress and that is the issue of liability protection for businesses. Yeah. So a lot of news organizations are saying the next pandemic that we're going to experience after COVID-19 is a lawsuit pandemic. So can you talk a little bit about that liability protection for businesses? Like who would qualify under the proposed bill that Senator Cornyn is working on? And is there some kind of compromise that we could see on this issue? 
Um, I, I think compromise is possible, uh, perhaps not likely, uh, but I do think it, we think it's an important thing because uh, companies, uh, I mean, often a lot of very um, uh, good intentioned legislation does wind up creating real headaches for people later on. A really good example of that is the Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, the ADA has cleared the way for all kinds of disabled people to function in the economy and in the communities that they didn't have before. It's done all lots of good in the world. But at the same time, it has, it opened the door to lots of frivolous lawsuits for a lot of small companies to face from, from lawyers who were just kind of looking to make some money uh, and would visit companies and find very small infractions and, and, and threaten to sue them and basically, uh, agree to settle for some amount of money. And basically they're just taking money from small businesses uh, without making a real change in society. And that's what we don't want to see happen here is, is, is lawyers deciding that, well, we see that you don't have a plexiglass plant panel in the right place in your store. Uh, and therefore we're going to send you a, a letter and threaten to take you to court unless you send us $5,000. Mm -hmm. uh, and we definitely could see that happen. So we do think that a, uh, that uh, 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 some protections for companies that follow some simple guidelines uh, is definitely in place. If there is room for a, for a compromise, uh, it, it is uh, on, the, on the flip side of this, which is the OSHA side of this, because um, when it comes to workforce protections, there's two lines of thinking. One is that that companies will do the right thing through set of through threat of uh, a lawsuit. The other is we have to have to have a government agency go and tell them what to do and create rules. Um, and there are legislative approaches right now in Congress looking at both of those things. Um, the Republicans are trying to create uh, some uh, protections for for companies on the lawsuit front who are bringing their workers back, trying to reopen, uh, you know trying to get things right and realizing that, that you know mistakes may be made uh, and that we shouldn't uh, close businesses because of that. But on the other hand, there are folks in the Congress who are pushing for uh, stronger rules from OSHA mm -hmm. and saying that, that, that OSHA needs to develop rules, they got to develop standards, and they've got to enforce them on companies with under threat of fine. Um, so, uh, so if... I hesitate to say this because I'm not sure that the compromise is one that we would like and that would be good for small businesses. But I think if there is room for something to move, it might be coupling uh, a, a bill that would have a little bit stronger OSHA enforcement with a bill that would provide liability protections for companies at the same time. That, I think, is the only space I see a, a compromise for. Uh, well, I'm not predicting that. I'm not, I don't think that will happen. But if there is a compromise, I think that's where it would be. So my final question for you before we actually get into some of the audience questions is, you know, there has been a lot of discussion about Congress is kind of dragging their feet and there's some concern about whether or not this liability protections is going to get passed. So you see businesses taking it upon themselves to create liability mm -hmm. waivers. So is that something that maybe you guys are recommending to members that they look at doing or should we wait for Congress to have some action on this? I don't, I don't think there's a reason to wait. I do think it's a good idea. Um, uh, it, it does also create a level of awareness 
and both the business owner and the employees to realize there is some liability here and that it is incumbent on the employees also to to think proactively and to and to behave safely and that the and that the business owner might not think of every last thing that should be done um so i do think it helps in that sense and and um uh the the way those waivers should be structured though probably depends on 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 state law they're going to vary because most of these lawsuits will be based more on 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 state law than on federal law so there's not one uniform suggestion we have nationally so um it will matter where you are, but we do think it's a, something that companies should definitely look at as they bring people back on. So I'm going to go ahead and open it up to the audience questions. We have had a few that have been coming in. So again, if you were not with us at the beginning, just to let you know, you can go ahead and ask your questions via the question and answer panel if you're tuning in with us via Zoom. Or of course, you can go ahead and ask your question by raising your hand and we will answer your question live on the air. We also have the option to go ahead and submit your questions via the comment section on our Facebook live stream, and we'll be happy to answer those questions as well. So let me get into a couple of the questions that we've been getting. So first of all, we do have a question that is asking, is this going to be it in terms of PPP changes, or are we going to see yet another bill making more changes to the PPP program? I think the only other bill we're likely to see making changes to the PPP program as it is deals with the tax deductibility of those expenses. Uh, as folks may be aware, in the original PPP bill, it said if you get forgiveness for uh, the loan, mm -hmm. uh, that forgiveness is not considered income. It will not be taxable income. Then the IRS came along after the bill had been passed and signed and people were already getting their loans and said, oh, by the way, if you get forgiveness, it's not taxable, then those expenses that you use that forgiveness for won't be deductible, mm -hmm. which is a distinction without a difference, obviously. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of the same thing. So clearly the legislators intended for this to be tax-free money the irs has come along and said well but they didn't draft the bill right so they didn't take care of the deductibility therefore it is it is non-deductible so effectively the forgiveness money is taxable uh, mm -hmm. to the business uh, that's what it means effectively the way things stand so i think there has been bipartisan Outrage may be too strong a word, but it's bipartisan disagreement with the IRS on this. And there are bills in both the House and the Senate with the support of both Republicans and Democrats to to resolve that. And I think there's a good chance that will pass. And that doesn't change the underlying PPP program, but it clearly changes the uh, the economic benefit of the PPP program for, for business owners. So I think there's a good chance that'll happen. And so we've also been getting a lot of questions in regards to some of the items that would be forgivable. So specifically, if a business owner decides to give bonuses or raises to employees based on performance during COVID-19, could that also be forgiven as well? Or do wages have to stay the same? Uh, yeah, generally speaking, those can be forgiven as well. Uh, I think there would be a standard if there was some, some uh, enormous or disproportionate bonus that 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 looked suspicious might it might get looked at uh and disallowed but in the main uh those things are allowable and you don't have to pay people less than last year um, now obviously you cannot get more forgiveness than you got in a loan so there is that cap right uh so i mean your your initial 
loan was essentially based on your average payroll for last year at times uh, uh, basically 10 weeks of average payroll from 2019. And a few exceptions to that, depending on exceptions to the company, but generally speaking, that's the, that's the rule. So that's the limit on how you, you can get forgiven uh, anyway. So uh, so it comes with a, sort of an automatic regulator anyway. So, but yes, they can. So we do have a specific question coming in, and I'm not sure if you can answer this, but specifically the question is, if I'm not ready to bring back my employees, could I take my PPP loan proceeds and invest it into my IRA as the owner and still be forgiven? Uh, no. <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically no. Um, yeah, they have to use the money for for those payroll expenses um, uh, and or uh, other allowable expenses. So it, it is what, it, and that's why we're looking for this flexibility so mm -hmm. that um, we want the businesses to succeed, not just bring people back for a little bit because the PPP forgiveness tells them they have to get the forgiveness and then have to let them go all over again right. and still fail as businesses and still have unemployed people. That wasn't the point of the program. So. It's just that the economic conditions have changed. I mean, people really thought in February and early March when this was designed that we would have to close the economy for a bit and then we'd reopen and everything would be fine. That has proven to be a naive and inaccurate view of what's happened. So they're trying to make changes to the program to, to, to adjust to the reality we're actually in. So we've also got a question coming in about the length of time that it is supposed to take for the forgiveness to be processed. So people have been told that it's going to take um, like up to nine months for the the uh, forgiveness to be processed. So is there any plan to introduce legislation to speed that up? I don't know where the nine months came from. I have not heard that. Um, uh, but it could take a little bit of time because the banks, this is the other piece of the PPP. The, the money went out via private banks, as everyone knows. Uh, because that was the fastest way to get the money into, into, into the hands of people. Uh, uh, they already had the contacts. It was a really big network of banks. But it also means the forgiveness has to go through those same banks. Uh, and the banks are going to be concerned about um, being liable for, for getting forgiveness where it might not have been um, properly documented. Mm -hmm. So there is concern. We do have concern about the banks not acting uh, efficaciously in all cases about this. We don't, that's just a, it hasn't really happened yet. Uh, but if, it, but if we begin to see circumstances, we will certainly get behind efforts to, uh, to make necessary changes to, to, to fix that problem if it is a problem. Um, but of course the same, uh, uh, backlog that the banks face getting the loans is also going to happen getting forgiveness. The problem of course is that, the uh, uh, the economic incentives for the forgiveness aren't there for the banks the way getting the loan out the door was because they got a they got a piece of that obviously um, and it's much less automated the forgiveness some person has to look at it to a degree and examine making sure all the all the documentation is there that it makes sense that it corresponds to the to the original documentation whereas the initial loan was was while not fully automated it was much more automated than this is going to be. So it is going to, uh, there's no question that it's going to take more uh, more time. I've not heard the nine months, but um, 
but I, it is something we're watching because I think it's, it could be a problem. Uh, and people probably, once they've reached the threshold to receive forgiveness, uh, they probably shouldn't wait to apply because it, it could put them at the end of a queue. It might be longer than they want it to be. That's great advice. I think we saw a lot of businesses that waited. And so there was that gap in funding for the PPP program in which they weren't able to get those loans. So when it comes to forgiveness, you want to start that process as, right. as early as possible. We do have another question coming in, and this one is in regards to EIDL and its relationship mm -hmm. to PPP loans. So if I got an EIDL loan or another loan from a bank, is that going to affect my PPP loan forgiveness? Uh, it, it, essentially, yes. Um, but if you look at the at the the forgiveness, there's a whole application form, and they they, they take that into account uh, in your uh, uh, in your uh, forgiveness application, essentially. But yeah, you can't use the same money for the. I mean, you can't use both both monies for the same expenses, essentially. So they they work that out in the application. Um, and then we do have another question that is coming in in regards to the liability protection. So there is a question about what would exactly be included in the bill that would prevent businesses from facing lawsuits. Would there be any kind of caveats that businesses would have to have in place in order to receive this protection? Yeah, that's still. I think that's still kind of in 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 flux. But I think there. I think it's really unlikely there will be blanket exemption from any liability. Um, I think there will be a safe harbor essentially to say if, if businesses have shown good faith and 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 posted the right information and done a few key things, that then they can get out from under uh, uh, liability. And so we've got another question that is coming in in regards to the infrastructure bill. So is that something that we could see? And given the amount of debt that um, the U.S. has taken on, how big could that potential infrastructure bill be? Understandably, because we have issued a lot of, you know, trillions of dollars worth of loans and, and relief yep. efforts. So would that essentially impact the size of an infrastructure bill that we would see? It, it could, but I think legislators' philosophy about infrastructure is really different because um, unlike other expenses, which really are expenses, uh, infrastructure, I think, is properly viewed as an investment. I mean, you actually are uh, investing in the infrastructure of the company in a way that will increase economic efficiency and output. Um, and so I do think they view those expenses differently. Now, now it's still we still have to raise taxes and debt and all the rest to pay for it in the, in the near term. So they can't forget about that. But I think they will they feel less constrained about infrastructure spending than they do about other kinds of spending. Also, we've got another question looking towards the future, asking about if Congress is making plans for a possible resurgence of COVID-19 in the fall. I think it's something we've heard a lot of discussion about. And so I think people are already wondering, am I going to have PPP funds and EIDL funds available, you know, if there was a resurgence in this? Uh, I think making plans is, is, is too generous a way to say uh, what Congress is up to. But, uh, <laughs> but I do think, uh, you know, in all seriousness, leaders are, are, are thinking about that and, and what would be the right 
response and trying to take in the lessons of this PPP program, which has, while helped a lot of people get through this period, uh, has not been without its issues and problems and, and design challenges. So they're trying to think about, well, what, what would that look like in the future? Um, and and we're, we're looking for input also from businesses uh, that we can pass on to legislators when they ask us these questions. I mean, for instance, uh, should uh, if uh, there's another outbreak in the fall and there's another round of, of this aid, does it matter whether a company received PPP before? I mean, should companies that didn't receive anything be first in line? Uh, or should it matter at all? Should it matter if the, the, the need of the company? Um, so th th that's the kind of things we're thinking about. But saying they have a plan, I'm not sure they're quite there yet. Well, hopefully we'll see um, the outlines of some kind of a plan emerging just in case. We do have another audience coming in from another audience question coming in that I actually want to piggyback off of asking what are you hearing from your members in terms of the impact and their recovery efforts? And I want to ask you as an organization, how are you guys pivoting and dealing with what we're calling a transition to a low touch economy or a new normal as other people are calling it? Yeah, I, we've really been talking to our members about um, the need for creative networking. I mean, when you look out in this economy right now, uh, and you see all kinds of creative and unexpected uh, endeavors that people are engaged in that that this situation has forced them into. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of that creativity does suggest other paths for the future as well, not just a temporary make-work thing, but if I think it's opened up new lines of potential commerce in the future, the way companies are partnering, non-traditional companies partnering with each other, uh, doing different things, utilizing each other's resources that, that have been idled for different reasons. Um, and I think the companies that are really going to succeed and move out of this era with some strength are those that are really well networked, that are, that are, that are talking to uh, other companies in their industries, in their line of work, and, and taking the creative ideas they're using, but also talking to other companies and trying to think of creative ways they can collaborate. Uh, and do different things, um, and uh, and and being able and willing to, to to move as much of the business to a virtual platform as possible, um, and the companies have, that have been doing that, I think, nimbly um, and well, are the ones that <clears throat> are sort of plugged into their environments and are taking really good ideas, creative ideas they just wouldn't have thought of on their own if they're sitting in their own little shop just talking to their employees. Um, but they're out in the world and seeing what's happening and bringing it back and doing, th doing some really creative and, and striking things. So for us, you know, we hear you hear a lot about, you know, yeah, companies are going to need credit. They're going to need regulatory reform. They're going to need the pathways cleared out. But um, the world is never going to be what it was before. And so we all have to think about how are we going to move ahead? And I think it's the companies that realize they don't have all the answers and they've got to reach out into the world. Uh, get it plugged into organizations, begin networking, and really talk and listen to what other people are doing that are going to succeed. Um, and so that's our really sort of our overriding message to people right now, that that kind of, um, well, networking, I guess, for lack of a better word, is more important than ever right now. 
And I think, you know, one of the, if there is a silver lining in this situation, it's, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so all of these businesses have really been stretched in terms of their creativity, but you see some amazing things, um, amazing transitions coming out of these businesses. And it's very inspiring to see them meeting and rising to this challenge. We do have another question coming in for you that I'm sure that you're getting from a lot of chambers of commerce. So what about 501c6 organizations like chambers? Oh my goodness. Are we going to see some kind of relief for them, some kind of addition and allowing them to apply for certain loans? Uh, I, I, I would have thought so, but I, I, I'm less optimistic. I mean, uh, as your, as your listeners may, may, may know, uh, 501c6 organizations, which basically are, are trade associations, trade and, trade and professional associations, mm-hmm. uh, were pretty much the only co- kind of businesses that were excluded from the PPP program. So 501c3s, which are, are what we think of traditionally as, as charitable nonprofits, they were included. Uh, all for-profit businesses were included. But 501c6s specifically were excluded. And a lot of, especially small chambers around the country, uh, who sort of small businesses that aren't able to pay their dues right now are just really struggling. Uh, and it, we've thought it was completely appropriate that they should be able to access these funds as well. Otherwise, I think a lot of small companies are going to wake up when this is all over with and realize their vital support organizations that are providing the kind of, you know, networking and, uh, and uh, uh, advice and uh, counseling that they've come to depend on will be gone. And now we have to recreate them from whole cloth uh, again, um, and that won't help our economy grow at all. So anyway, we have we have definitely advocated for the 501c6s to be included. Um, a few weeks ago, I would have thought they would would have been in a in a, a new round of the bill that we're about to see, but uh, I don't think they will be. So, what is the reasoning behind that kind of? locking out of 501c6s is there kind of this assumption that they're all just lobbying organizations and yes what is that the, the uh, it's, general it's, it's essentially a cya attitude they're, they're worried there'll be some organization that's going to get some money and they'll be on the hill lobbying and they'll get bad publicity because the organization uh you've got a federal handout and here they are lobbying congress mm-hmm. um when in reality the vast majority of these little organizations have nothing to do with lobbying. Uh, And we've advocated that they specifically exclude lobbying expenses from the forgiveness. If if this were passed, that there there are ways to deal with that, with that question. Um, Meanwhile, you know, you can say the same thing about 501c3s, which are eligible. And, and, and yes, that includes a lot of, of completely non-political organizations that do good works in their communities. Uh, but it also includes some very engaged, big um, organizations that are dealing in politics and what most rational people would call lobbying every day, um, even though it's not technically legally lobbying in the way that the, the term is defined. Uh, and they can get they can get and have gotten millions of dollars in PPP funds, but a small little chamber of commerce cannot. And that strikes me as fundamentally unfair. We do have a question also about aid for contractors, specifically government contractors. Could we seek some kind of expansion in, you know, um, small disadvantaged business programs and more of an emphasis on contracting with them for the next year or so? I I, I hope so. I actually, uh, I'm going to be on a a small call with the Secretary of Defense tomorrow, who is 
looking specifically at what DOD can do to help small companies that are connected to the defense industry in some way uh, get through this. And that's one of the things I'm going to suggest. Uh, and they seem to be open to those kinds of ideas. Uh, heretofore, they've mostly been encouraging the sort of the prime contractors to do things to help with prompt payment and that kind of thing to help their small companies. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But there's more that I think the department can do directly uh, uh, in their interactions with these companies. So we're going to be encouraging that for sure. So my final question for you before we let you go is your top three things that businesses should be focused on in terms of policy. What should they be writing their legislators about? What are those kind of top key three issues that you feel could use the most small business voice on the Hill for? Uh, I do think right now this whole deductibility issue, I, I, while I think there's support for it, it could get lost in the shuffle. So I think, I think a clear voice that that's really important because that dramatically increases the value of the PPV forgiveness for companies. I think people don't realize how big it is, but it's it's it's, it's it could be pretty significant. So that would that would absolutely be one thing. I think the second thing is to is, to, is a real focus on these regulations because that can make a real difference too. The problem, of course, is that they're each individually very small, but collectively they can make a huge difference in the paperwork and and the and the day to day. Um, red tape that a small business faces. So in, engaging on that uh, and sending in some comments when the agency has proposed these changes could be really helpful uh, to people. Uh, and then finally, I think a real pivot to strengthen the economy overall without you know, a specific focus on small business, but putting together a package probably to include an infrastructure bill uh, to help with 5G deployment, for instance, uh, especially in less served areas. Um, and to uh, 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 improve the overall economic environment uh, would be really helpful. And of course, the final piece is is going to be the lending piece. And this that's a really struggle right now because, as I said, most companies aren't actively seeking lending. But as the economy begins to turn, a really deep fear that we have is that companies will begin to see opportunities that they won't be able to get funded. And it's going to really impede our growth. We saw this coming out of the 2008-2009 recession. Um, it went a lot slower than it could have and should have because so many small businesses, because of the 2008-2009 events, you know, looked like a poor risk to the banks because you know their 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 balance sheet was damaged. Uh, they uh, their credit score went down because of all the events that happened. And that's going to be the same thing now. A lot of companies are not going to look like as good a risk as they really are on paper uh, and we've got to find creative ways to make sure that the banks the banks make those loans um, some of the stuff the fed's talking about will help but i think in really engaging people now so that we're ready um, with those credit instruments when the economy begins to turn is really important so i want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your incredibly busy schedule and i'm sure a lot of virtual meetings that are going back and forth we really appreciate everything. I do want to let you know that Cindy, our CEO, sent a message in our uh, chat box thanking you so much for sharing such great information, letting you know that she appreciates your leadership, and hopefully we will see you the next time that we are in D.C. We are also, you know, with everything going on, really going to be pushing even more that White House Council on Small Businesses, okay. and we're, we're happy to par partner with you all on that. Um, with everything that's occurring, it's going to be more important than ever to make sure that small businesses are heard on the Hill. Thank you so much for everything 
for this today and everything that you guys do every single other day of the year to really help small businesses. Look forward to visiting you in DC and the next time that you are coming down to Alamogordo, give us a call and we would be happy to, uh, to take you out for some margaritas and tacos. Great. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Todd. Thanks a lot. Stay safe, stay healthy. We Bye. will see you all later. Bye-bye. And that's it for this episode of Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast. We want to give a big thank you to our guest, Mr. Todd McCracken, president of the NSBA. And of course, we also want to thank our partners, Sun Carpets and Epicenter. Make sure to subscribe on your preferred listening platform so that way then you are up to date with all of our new episodes of Sharing Sweat Equity. We will see you all next time.